I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans 13 this morning. Romans, or sorry, Romans 15 is where we're going to meet together and uh, study together in God's Word. We're going to have a little bit of a topical approach this morning. And then what I want you to do while you're turning there, hopefully throughout the month or even this morning, you have been given, you've received this booklet, our Missions Month booklet. I want you to have this handy. There's a sermon notes page. I would encourage you to write down the five main points from the message this morning right here in this booklet. And we're going to really use this booklet this morning at the end of the service. And so I want you to keep that handy um, as, as we're looking through it and as we're thinking about the missionaries we support. But let's find our place in Romans chapter number 15 this morning, um, and, and we'll get into God's word this morning. Now, I know there's something important or something big happening today. I'm trying to remember, uh, is it a holiday or a sporting event? Gosh, what's the name of that? Anyone help me out? What's happening this afternoon? 6 p.m. I know there's church. Someone help me out. Oh, the Super Bowl. That's right, the Super Bowl. And I know there's two, there's two teams playing. I, both of them wear red. I know that. It's the San Francisco 49ers and uh, the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, wait, no, that never happens. Um, boy, who is it? Uh, the, the Oakland Chiefs? No. The Kansas City Chiefs. That's right. Who's playing? How many of y'all are rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs tonight? All right, I got my hair. I'm going for them. Now, I do appreciate the 49ers. Love Brock Purdy and his stance for the Lord. How many of y'all are, are saying, I'm going for the 49ers because I just want anyone to beat the Chiefs? Anyone? Wow, brave soul, Kathy Pinkstrauss. You got more courage than I gave you credit for. That's a lot of courage. Raise your hand in this room. We got one. Oh, my, D. Okay, all right. So we got, we got two. D, are you technically a redhead? We got two, two ladies who've got, who've got some anti-Chiefs blood. I'm not sure if you'll be welcome here next Sunday, but I appreciate your courage and your bravery. We got the Chiefs, and we've got the 49ers playing tonight in the Super Bowl. Uh, if you've been following the Chiefs for any bit, you know that this is their fourth Super Bowl in six years. Not bad, if I say so myself. Maybe a little bit of credit goes to Mr. Patrick Mahomes and his coach, Andy Reid. And much of the focus tonight of the game, and maybe much of the focus leading up this week to the game, is really put on the 22 players that are the starting lineup for each team. Those are names you've probably heard. Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Chris Jones, Brock Purdy, Christian McCaffrey, right? And their head coaches. Those are the names generally you hear in the media, you see scrolling on social media. Those are the people that really the cameras are going to be fixed on most of the time tonight. But what you may not realize and what we may not always recognize as we're watching a football game is for each team, they may have 22 people on the field, but they have 100 plus people that are not on the field, that all work, and I say 100 plus because it's probably a lot more than that, to work to make sure that those 22 people on the field play at their very best level. There's 100 plus people off the field that directly interact with the players in some form or capacity to make sure that each one of those 22 people play at their highest level. 
you're probably familiar with some of them are the coaches, the coaching staff. There's a coach for everything if you're on the NFL team, right? There's a head coach and there's a couple assistant coaches. There's coordinators. There's play callers. There's people who coach literally every position. Sometimes you have a center coach. You realize there's only one center on the field at a time and they have their own, very own coach. Imagine that. These people must have a lot of money to pay all these people. You've got, not only do you have coaches, which are probably about 10 to 20 different people that are backing up the team and helping them, but for every 22 players on the team, you've got roughly 40 plus backup players. 40 plus. Two times the amount of people are on the field who are on the bench, whether they're part of the practice squad or whether they're part of the depth chart that gets subbed in when a guy gets injured or somebody gets hurt. You've got around 40 players that back them up. You've got 10 to 20 coaches. And then on top of that, you have support staff. Support staff, as if they didn't need enough help. They've got coaches who are managing every move. Now you've got support staff. You have people who are athletic trainers, these people make sure they tape ankles, they tape wrists, they make sure if there's an injury, they're treating that on the sidelines so they can get back into the game as soon as possible. You have other medical personnel. You have a whole team of people that manage the equipment, right? We didn't know about those guys until Patrick Mahomes busted his helmet mid-game. And then it's like, oh yeah, those people exist too. Someone's full-time job is making sure all the pads and the helmets and the cleats and the jerseys make it to Las Vegas, You've got video analysts, the guys sitting up at the booth who are, as the game is going, going on, analyzing the defense and the offense and looking for new strategies to make plays work. You have um, administration staff. You have sports scientists. You have nutritionists that are helping these guys eat the right food so that they can perform at the optimal level. You have public relations personnel and all sorts of other people. And the size of the sports staff can be several dozen people. So tonight, if you find yourself watching the Super Bowl, you're going to see on camera 22 people on the field at a time, 11 on each side. But really, behind the lines, there are a hundred plus paid staff making sure that the guys who are on the field are getting the job done. Though the illustration isn't perfect, I think that's a perfect way or almost perfect way for us to think about missions work. See, the reality is the reason why the NFL teams use their resources to hire all the staff is here's what they recognize. In a pro league, here's what they know. The more support that a player has from people off the field, the better that player will perform on the field. And I believe this this morning when it comes to missionary work. We have, as a church, about 10 or so missionary partners that we support that are, quote, on the field. And my burden this morning is I want us as a church to get really bought in to what you and I can do as, quote, off-the-field personnel to support and back up and resource our missionary partners so that every single family we find ourselves responsible for is performing and, and serving at the highest level on the field. Now this morning, I'm not just gonna apply it to them. I think all of us, in a sense, would we agree, 
we're all on the field serving the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're supporting people who are going, uh, you know, to Columbia or whatever with the gospel, but we also, you are supposed to take the gospel to your own field, to your workplace, to your family, to your people. So I'll make application there, but this morning what I want us to focus on is the people who are on the field in different countries. And as a church, what we have to recognize is that we don't just give them a hug and send them off and never think about them again. God has given us as supporting churches to these missionary families so that we can serve like a support staff on an NFL team that does our best off the field to make sure the men and women who are on the field are performing at their best level. One thing we're going to talk about, and we have talked about a little bit, that will culminate on the last Sunday of the month is I'm encouraging, especially all of our church members, to fill out, and this was stuck in your bulletin this morning, the bottom half of this card that is a missions month pledge that you're going to pledge to give monthly or weekly for the next 12 months. Whatever that may be for you, that's between you and the Lord. But we do want you to turn in these anonymous pledges in at the end of the month so that we can form a missions budget and know financially as a church how we can resource our missionaries. They count on our dollars to be able to do a bunch of stuff on the field. But this morning, I'm not going to talk about that part of the resourcing that we do as off-field personnel. In fact, this, this, this Sunday school, uh, just prior to this service, if, if you haven't been to Sunday school, I'd encourage you to make it a point to be there. We focus on a lot of really important things. We talked about how our missions budget in the last three years has tripled, tripled in the giving from our church family. Um, so I'm really proud of our church for stepping up and getting bought in, and yet there's still more to do but this morning, I want to talk about another way that you as somebody who's, quote, off the field can support the men and women who are on the field doing cross-cultural missions work. What I want to share with you this morning from the scriptures is I want to just teach you very simply and practically how you and I can pray for our missionary partners. I believe this morning that if every single missionary partner that's on the back page of that booklet were to stand up from this pulpit, at some point in their time talking to you and me, they would say the same words Paul said in Romans 15 in verse number 30. Now I beseech you, now, you and I don't use that word, but here's what Paul's saying. I'm begging you, brethren. I'm begging you for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers. Paul says this morning to us, as a missionary himself, I think speaking on behalf of all missionaries, he says, I, I've got a, a final word for you, church at Rome, before I give you all my customary greetings. Here's my word for you. I am begging you, not just for me, but for the sake of the one who died for you, 
for the sake of the, the sake of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, I am begging you to strive together with me. You know that word strive together? It, it literally means to be a coworker. The idea is, is, is people rowing in a boat together, going in the same direction. So the idea here is this, that you will never, you may never find yourself in England like the Hendricks family will soon be in England in fall of 2024. You may never be there. You may never get to talk to somebody in England about the gospel. You'll never hand out a street invitation. You probably will never find yourself in Mozambique leading people to Christ in the villages of Mozambique or Burkina Faso like, our, like the Wilkerson's or the Browns are doing. But Paul says, you may not be with me, but you can be a coworker with me through the avenue of prayer. And what I want to share with you through this passage in Romans, we're going to be in Colossians 4 in just a minute, and in Ephesians 6, I want to give you five prayers you can pray for our missionary partners. I hope you'll write these down, because I'm, I'm going to ask us all to pray at the end of the service for one of our missionary partners, okay? So write them down so you don't forget. Five prayers you could be praying for our missionary partners partners that are begging us to work with them in prayer. Find yourself and hold your space in Romans and then go to Colossians chapter number four with me. Colossians chapter number four. And here's the first prayer that I want to encourage you to pray for our missionary partners. It'll be on the screen. I want you to pray that God will give an open door to present the gospel. Pray that God will give an open door to present the gospel. Look at it, Colossians chapter number four, verses two and three. I forgot to put verse three on the screen, so that's why we're turning there. It's actually the most important verse, all right? Look at Colossians four, verse two. Here's the first prayer. Pray that God will give an open door to present the gospel. Paul, speaking to another church, says this. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. With all are also praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. Paul is ending his letter here to the Colossians and notice, notice how he always seems to be ending his letters with prayer. Do you wonder why that is? Maybe it's the thing that he wanted to leave them with when he was done. Look, we've covered a lot of ground, but I need you guys to be praying for me. And to the church at Colossae, here's what he says. Here's what I need you to be praying for. I need you to be praying that God will give an open door to present the gospel. Now, why would Paul ask us to pray for that or ask them to pray for God to give him an open door to present the gospel? Well, he says in verse number three that he's in Bonds, he's in chains, okay? Now, when you think about somebody who's imprisoned, I don't think the word opportunity jumps, jumps off the page, does it? Yeah, that's a guy who has a lot of opportunity. The dude who's locked up in prison. None of us have ever said that. But here's Paul, he's locked up in chains, and he's saying, I need you to pray for me that God will give me a door of utterance, an opportunity to speak the mystery of Christ. What could he have been asking for? 
Well, no doubt he was asking, because he was chained not to a wall or to a, a cage or anything. He was chained to a Roman 24-7. Imagine that. Now, I don't know about you. When I think of a Roman guard, I don't think of a man who has good body odor. I think of a man who's got some stinky body odor. He's wearing the same shin guards and the same shield that's got that same leather strap that he has sweated in for 20 years. And, and Paul is chained to that guy 24-7. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, I'm chained to this guy 24-7. I need an open door to present the gospel because the last thing this Roman wants to do is listen to me talk about my religion. I need you to open doors for the gospel because the last thing I feel like I have right now in prison is opportunities. I used to go and find gospel opportunities. Now I have to wait for God to bring gospel opportunities to me. And so Paul is begging the church at Colossae to pray for him that God will open a door. And here's the other thing we have to recognize. You can find yourself in a city with billions or millions or whatever lost people. But how many of us recognize this? It doesn't matter how loud you preach the gospel. If their heart's not ready for it, it's not going anywhere. I think Paul recognized, I can preach the gospel all I want. But if God supernaturally, prior to me preaching the gospel, has not done his work of bringing them to a place where they know they need the Lord, of bringing them to a place where they're ready to receive the message of the gospel, bringing them on some hard times maybe, bringing them to the end of their sin, helping them see the shallowness of their empty religion, Here's what Paul's saying. If God doesn't do that apart from me, my message won't go anywhere. This morning, church family, when we look at our missionary partners on that last page, I want you to pray that God will give these men and women open doors to present the gospel. You realize how desperately our missionaries need God to supernaturally open doors to present the gospel? Think of how difficult it must be for some of them to have an opportunity where the gospel will be heard. I think of Ed Bousel, who's at the top left of your page. He's ministering unto Sioux Indians who have lived and practiced the same pagan religion for generations. They don't want Christianity. No one begged Ed Bousel to come give them the gospel. If they accept Christianity, they're going to be alienated from their family. If they accept Christianity, there could be a tribal leader who ousts them. If they accept Christianity, they could be concerned based on what they were taught growing up that bad spirits will haunt them. Being around missionaries, I know that one of the most difficult mission fields in the world is ministering among tribal peoples. I think of Dallas Brown, our missionary to Burkina Faso. You realize he's ministering in a Muslim-majority community where quite literally, if you accept the gospel or maybe if you just go to his church service, he has had women attend his church service who went home and were beaten by their husbands simply because they went to church that morning. They weren't even Christians. They just went to hear what, what it was all about. Do you recognize this morning that if you're ministering in a field like that, you need God to supernaturally open doors? Because the, the, the natural man receives not the things of God. 
The natural man does not leave a, a Muslim culture and a Muslim religion with, with the, the, the possibility of being ousted and abused by your family unless God has done something in that man or that woman's heart to say, I need an opportunity to hear the gospel. I think of Colin and Callie, who we met last week, who are going uh, to England, to a country that, frankly, Colin was telling me, he can't tell people he's a missionary because if he tells them the missionary, they're gonna say, why on earth are you here? Missionaries go to Africa, not England. We don't need you. That's the prevailing mentality in England. They don't need Colin. They don't want Colin there. They don't need a guy telling them about Jesus because they think they've got enough Jesus. Yeah, they attend church. The dead a gospelist Church of England, where people write Church of England on their resumes, even though they're not actually Christians at all. God needs to open some doors. God needs to use Colin and his relationship building to open some doors to the gospel. And here's the reality too, of all of us here who minister in our own communities in Garden City, Finney County, Cimarron, Dodge City, whatever the case may be, would you recognize this morning that you and I need some help with God opening some doors to present the gospel? I need an opportunity. Sometimes I say, well, I haven't gotten an opportunity to present the gospel in a long time. Well, let me ask you, how, when have you been praying for an opportunity to present the gospel? When have you been praying for an open door? And I don't know if this is true that God gives us more open doors when we pray about them, or maybe it's more like this. We just see them a little bit better when we start praying for them. But I know this, you can, you can know somebody for a year and there'll never quite be a good opportunity to talk to him about Christ, but there's always that one moment God will give you if you just pray for it, if you just pray for it. But here's the reality. If you or I are a missionary in England or Mozambique or Mexico gets an open door to present the gospel, an open door to present the gospel is worthless if that person doesn't open their mouth and preach the gospel right? And that's why the second prayer, we really need to be praying for our missionaries in this area because honestly, they're just like you and me. Honestly, they're just like you and me. When, when they have an opportunity to present the gospel, how many of you have had an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus and you just flat out chickened out? My hand's like way high. You know, missionaries are just like you and me in the flesh, in our natural state. Oh, I don't know. It could be awkward. I could get rejected. That's why we need to pray the second prayer. We need to pray that God will give them boldness to preach the gospel. We need to pray for our missionaries, every single one of them, that God will give them boldness to preach the gospel. You think they're a missionary because they already have boldness. That may be true to some degree, but let me promise you right now, every missionary would stand up on this stage and say, you know, there were times I've chickened out. There were times I was too scared to open my mouth. There are times I thought I'd be too offensive, so I just didn't say anything. And that's why we need to cover our missionary partners in prayer that they may preach with boldness to give people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul begs this church at Ephesus to pray that God will give him not just utterance, the same idea, an open door, but then he says, I want you to pray for that open door that leads to me having the boldness to preach why I need to preach. Look at Ephesians 6. I think it's on the screen. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You know what that's saying? Keep praying. Keep praying. Don't give up. Keep praying. Pray in missions month. 
Pray in March. Pray in May. Pray in June. And verse 19, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me an open door and that I may open my mouth, what? Boldly. To make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, if you followed Paul's journey, you know that there probably were a few times God answered that prayer for boldness. As we were studying through the book of Acts as a church, we saw that as Paul was standing before world leaders who literally determined if the man would live or die, he had the boldness to preach the gospel to them. We saw that when Paul was in trouble because there was a whole mob of people in this city, Ephesus, who wanted to kill him for preaching against paganism and saying that idols are not actually gods, a huge citywide riot happened. You want to know if Paul received the answer to this prayer for boldness? Paul was so ready to preach the gospel that other people with him had to hold him back and say, dude, if you preach the gospel, you're going to be dead. (laughs) An alive missionary is a lot better than a dead missionary. Somebody testify to that. And listen, our friends across the seas and down in other countries need boldness to preach the gospel. I think of our missionary, Abdu Isa. We've supported him as a church, I think, for a pretty long time. He's ministering in the country of Lebanon. His ministry really is to refugees from other Muslim countries. Are you getting the sense that maybe this might be a unique place to be ministering? I don't know about you. I don't think that Abdu Isa, the preacher of Christianity, is the town favorite amongst a bunch of people who are Muslims who are coming from other countries where it's kind of normal for Muslims to beat up other people of other religions. Boy, we need to pray for Abdu Isa as he's standing in refugee camps and he's ministering to people and he's ministering in a war-torn country that God would give him boldness to preach the gospel, that God would give him wisdom to know how to preach the gospel to other people. We need to pray for other people on our list here, that God would give them boldness, that they wouldn't turn down a single opportunity to preach the gospel to somebody who needs it. And we need to pray for each other. Because God could give you every opportunity you need at work this week to preach the gospel, but what good is it if you don't take it? What good is it if you chicken out? You know what's comforting to me is that none of us are bold enough to preach the gospel in our own strength. You might say, I'm not, I'm not bold enough to do that. Count me out of that. Hey, join the club. The only reason you or me or Paul the apostle would ever have the willingness to preach the gospel is because God himself gave us the boldness to do it. So if you think, count me out, I'm not the guy who's gonna speak the gospel. Well, you join the club. That's just the rest of us. If not for the grace of God, none of us would speak the gospel. Friends, when was the last time you prayed more than just for that sick person's health and started praying for their evangelism? When was the last time when you thought of the other church members in our church and whom you care about and love so much that you didn't just pray for the, the aches and the pains, but you prayed for them that they would share the gospel boldly with their kids who are lost? with their siblings who still haven't accepted Christ? 
with their coworkers that they spend 40 hours a week with and have never heard them talk about Jesus. Friends, we have an evangelism ministry ourselves here. You're a missionary. You became a missionary the moment you became a Christian. Sorry. And you and I need the boldness to preach the gospel. I know one solution to that. Let's start praying for each other. Hey, pray for me. You know, I chicken out too sometimes. Too many. I have opportunities to share the gospel. I have opportunities to invite people to church that I don't take because I'm a weak, sinful person just like any one of us. And I need you to pray for me. I'm being selfish here. Pray for me. I know you pray for me in other ways. Pray for me that I'll open my mouth and preach the gospel and not, not chicken out. But here's the reality. Once, we, once these missionaries labor among these people and preach the gospel, there can be some, some challenges, especially with people like Paul who are ministering in Judea. Look back at Romans 15, and we'll spend the rest of our time there this morning. In Romans chapter 15, verse number 31, Paul gives us the third prayer we pray for our missionaries, and here's what it is. Pray for deliverance from opposition to the gospel. Pray for deliverance from opposition to the gospel. Verse number 30, he's begging us. I beg you, brothers and sisters, I'm begging you to pray for me for the Lord Jesus' sake, for the sake of the Spirit. Strive together with me in your prayers. Verse number 31, what do you want me to pray, Paul? Here's the first prayer request. That I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. What do you want me to pray for, Paul? I want you to pray. Here's what he says. I want you to pray that I won't be dead next week. I want you to pray that I don't end up in jail again. Now, if you're with us in the book of Acts or you've read the book of Acts lately, you know that, that it seems like the Paul the Apostle is almost like the great Houdini. The man never seems to be stuck in prison for very long, right? As you read the book of Acts, it seems like, you know, someone's miraculously delivering him. An angel shows up and busts him out of prison. Or some other thing happens. Or there's a crowd that's riding that wants to kill him or lock him up. But someone settles the crowd down and he escapes unharmed. The man seemed to get out of almost every bit of trouble he got into. And here's what I wonder. I just had this thought thinking about this last night. I wonder if all the times we saw Paul escape from opposition to the gospel was because somebody was praying this prayer. Somebody was praying this prayer. History tells us that Paul wrote the book of Romans in the city of Corinth. If you remember in Acts, the city of Corinth was one of the few cities that biographically Luke lets us into the fact that Paul was so discouraged he was ready to quit. He had so much opposition, he was ready to get out of there. And what we read in the book of Acts, ah, if I had to guess, it was like chapter 18 or something like that. But if we read in the book of Acts, we find out that the Lord came to him and spoke to him and ministered to him and he stayed there another two years. I wonder if that's because somebody was praying this prayer. 
Does it make any sense that a guy who was in an area for a couple weeks was so discouraged and felt so opposed that he's ready to leave and somehow ministers for another two years? Somebody was praying this prayer. Friends, some of our missionaries minister in peaceful areas, but some of them do not. All of them, to one degree or another, face opposition to the gospel. Every single one of them. Just on a minor note, I think of Brian Brown, who's ministering in Mexico, that they are constantly, because of different policies at the building complex they rent out to have their services, their their efforts in hosting services there seem to be challenged on a monthly basis because they have messed up landlords and messed up tenants next door who keep trying to interfere at their events. I, I think of Dallas Brown, who quite literally... This will blow your mind. Dallas Brown, our missionary in Burkina Faso, who's had witch doctors try to cast curses on his family. He was telling me one time, the very first time I talked to him, he said, yeah, I went out in my yard and there's a bunch of weird stuff in my yard. And he says, come to find out the, the town witch doctor had tried to cast a hex on me or something. He's like, I wasn't that worried about it, but you know, because uh, I don't think it's, it's legit. I don't know about you, I'd be, I'd be concerned. I'd need some prayers for deliverance. There's opposition to the gospel. Listen, anywhere you go, first world, third world, Muslim country, Anglican country, there will be opposition to the gospel. You want to know why? Because nobody is more fired up about stopping missionaries than Satan himself the prince of this world. And you would be surprised on a weekly basis, those who find themselves on the field serving the Lord Jesus Christ, how often Satan tries to stop them. You'd be surprised how sick missionaries get when they start serving the Lord Jesus. How often they get malaria in other diseases. How often financial turmoil happens that I think is sometimes from Satan himself trying to stop them. Churches back home dropping their support while they're on the field. Inexplicably, no reason. We need to pray for our missionaries for deliverance from opposition. I have a friend who was a missionary in China who, for no reason that he could figure out, when he came back home on a furlough to get some medical care for his family done, he couldn't go back to China. He grew up there his entire life. He was a missionary there for like six years. Couldn't go back. Now you'd expect Paul's ministry prayer request list to include something about the lost, right? That makes sense. But this next one in verse number 31 is is surprising to me because here's what Paul prays and asks us to pray for. He says, I want you to pray for the effectiveness of ministry among Christians. We're like, Paul, yeah, we'll pray for you and those heathen people. But Paul says, you need to pray for the heathen people. You also need to pray for the non-heathen people because I'm concerned I'm gonna have some trouble with them too. Look at verse number 31 in Romans chapter 15. 
He's listing his prayer requests. It might as well be a bullet point list. He says, and that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints. What is that service he had for Jerusalem? Again, history tells us that Paul was writing this letter while he was in Corinth. And if you study the journeys of Paul, what he did right before he ended up in Judea and Jerusalem is he did kind of a, a circuit to all the churches he started to raise money for the church at Jerusalem. Now, a little bit of understanding here. The church at Jerusalem was obviously primarily Jewish people. Um, they were not, they were still kind of grappling with this Jew-Gentile thing. They weren't really a big fan of Gentiles. They're trying to work through some maybe historical racism and prejudice that they had inherited. And then on top of that, they were the OG church. That, that means the original church, okay? They were the OG church. They were the first church, the church at Jerusalem. But something had happened. There was great persecution in Jerusalem. And so we read in Acts chapter four a couple of weeks ago how the church at Jerusalem had really poor people and really rich people in their church. By the time Paul is in this spot in his ministry, there are no rich people left because all the rich people have been fired from their jobs or driven away from the area because of persecution. And so all you had left in this church were people who are very, very impoverished and nobody locally to help support them. All the people who weren't Christians just left them out to dry. They wanted them to starve to death. So what did Paul do? He went and raised money to go help feed these people. Now you're thinking, oh, they must have just been ready, welcoming Paul with arms wide open, ready to give Paul a big bear hug because who wouldn't love a guy who's giving them a bunch of money so they could feed their families? Apparently, Paul was a little worried about how he would be received. Stop, time out. We all agree that sometimes Christians are kind of mean to other Christians. Would we agree sometimes that there's a tendency in life that people bite the hand that feeds them? Some of y'all are shaking your head. You know what I'm talking about. So you say, why on earth would these people be mad at Paul? He's trying to help them out. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. But it's probably because they didn't like the idea that the Gentiles, those dirty, filthy Gentiles were supporting him. We don't need your help. We're Jews. We got it figured out. We're God's people. Or maybe, hey, we're an established church. Why are all you young churches need to help us out? We'll figure it out on our own. We don't need help from these younger churches because we're a grown-up church. We've been around longer than all of y'all. We have more history. I don't know. But Paul was worried when he showed up in Jerusalem, it wouldn't just be the people who didn't know Christ that would oppose him. It would be the people who knew Christ themselves who wouldn't even accept all of the hard work he had put in to help this church out. Friends, if there's one request I think will be relevant to every single missionary on this list, it's this one. As a pastor myself, here's what I know. The burdens that grip the heart of a pastor and missionary most isn't just the need of the lost. It's how much junk you got to work through with people who are growing in Christ. You got Brian Brown. He's starting literally three churches at the same time. I think that's money well spent, don't you? We got a missionary who's not just playing one church. He's got three churches he's helping lead right now. And here's what I know about Brian after talking with him. He's trying, as he's leading these churches, he doesn't want to pastor these churches forever. No man can do that for a long time. He's trying to train up people in Monterey, Mexico, who are gifted by God to lead as pastors. But here's what I know. When you're training up leaders, sin happens. 
Men who could be a pastor disqualify themselves. Christians that could be part of a nucleus of a team that could be a healthy core of that church go off the rails and leave the church. Counseling needs to be done. Sin needs to be addressed. A lot of our missionaries in some of these harder fields like Portugal, with the Dan Smith family that's serving there, and we have uh, um, other folks like Dalton Walker in New Zealand, and I'm telling you, one of the most common prayer requests from our missionaries is, I'm having a really hard time getting a man and, and his family to stay long enough to become a leader in our church. I can't leave. I can't go home to the States for very long if I don't have a guy locally who's spiritually mature enough to lead our church while I'm gone. Friends, we need to pray for our missionaries to have an effective ministry among the believers in their towns. We need to pray that God will help them to fulfill, I believe it's 2 Timothy 2, 2, to pass on the things they've learned to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Here's the last one. Pray for the progress of the gospel to expand into new horizons. Pray for the progress of the gospel to expand into new horizons. Look at verse 32. This is the last one, but hang with me, okay? Paul says in verse number 32, here's my next one. That... I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. What does that mean? It's Paul just pray, Paul's praying, first of all, for a successful journey to Rome. And here's what's funny. Paul granted, or, or Paul's request was granted by God, but not maybe in the way you and I would think. You know how Paul got to Rome? He got arrested in Judea, the place he was hoping he'd be delivered from opposition. But why did Paul want to go to Rome? There was already a church there. He didn't need to go there uh, to see a church. But look at verse 24. It tells us, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey. Think about this. Paul wasn't trying to get to Rome because he thought Rome needed him. Paul was trying to go all the way to Spain. Paul was trying to take the gospel even further into the western horizons of the known world. Paul wanted to get to Rome so maybe he could receive some financial support to finance his journey into Spain, maybe get a little bit of a break, be among people who are friends and would, and would welcome him with open arms, who appreciate his ministry, but he had his sights set on a new horizon of ministry. He was trying to go to Spain. And friends, Paul knew what he was doing. Because if there's anywhere you want to go with the gospel to get the gospel really, really far, you would want to end up in Spain. My wife and I, uh, a week or so ago, were, found ourselves in Puerto Rico. A friend asked us to do, to, for me to do a wedding there. Puerto Rico is a long, long way from Spain. Like a long way. You know why all the folks there speak Spanish? Because a couple hundred years ago, they were part of the Spanish empire. And so was like half of Ameri the Americas. You look at a map of the Spanish Empire, it's basically the whole left side of North and South America and Florida and all those states. I mean, I wonder if Paul knew or, the, or God knew that Paul needed to get to Spain so that the gospel could get from Spain to all over the new world. 
when it would spread in the 14 and 1500s. Friends, it's our tendency to pray for what missionaries need right now, but here's what I can tell you. Our missionaries need us to be praying for for God to clear a path to take the gospel one, two, and three steps further. Hey, be praying right now. Be praying right now for Dallas Brown to have a local pastor so he can go start a church somewhere else. He just started his church a year and a half ago. Why would we be praying that? Because we need to be praying for the progress of the gospel to New Horizons. And there are plenty of villages in Burkina Faso that need the gospel. Be praying right now for some of our missionaries like Dan Smith to be able to establish his church there in Portugal and maybe be able to, in his last season as a missionary in the next 10 to 15, 20 years, to start another church in Portugal. Be praying right now for Brian Brown, who not only has two church plants that they're starting out of their church there in Monterey, Mexico, and raising up leaders to take those two church plants, but they're also in their church. They have a healthy culture of raising up international missionaries. They're looking right now, not just to send a couple, uh, a, a husband and wife, but to send a team of people, not to a city in Mexico, but to Australia. Be praying that our missionaries can keep sending the gospel further. And by the way, while you're praying for them, why don't you pray for our church? Pray for our ministry, pray for our people to see the gospel go one step and another step and another step. I love what one man said about prayer. He said, pray the largest prayers. You cannot think a prayer so large that God in answering it will not wish you had made it larger. Different times my prayers were too small. Way too small. I would say there are a lot of times I've prayed prayers that are too small and I can't think of a single time I prayed a prayer that was too big. Our missionaries need our prayers. If they could stand before you today, they would, like Paul in Romans 15, 30, say, I beg you, I beg you to strive together with me in your prayers. Church family, the work is so hard and there's so much to be done. We've gotta be the off-field support our friends need. You might say, well, dozens of other churches support them. You realize that I, when I came here about two years ago, I called our missionaries. Some of them said no one's ever called them in the last couple of years other than their sending church. They can go months and years without hearing from a single supporting church other than a check and a God bless you. They need all the off-field support we can give them. say, well, we're not a lot, of, a lot of people in this church. If one phone call makes, makes you a good supporting church, hey, we could, have, we could have five phone calls. We could have five emails praying for you. And what I want to encourage you to do this morning and even going forward in the future, find, find a time, find a place. I need to be do, doing something and praying about this myself that, that you will dedicate to praying for one missionary and then the next and then the next. Maybe at dinner time, instead of just blessing the food, you pray for a missionary. 
Maybe at bedtime, instead of just praying, you know, your same old cliche prayer, you pray for a missionary. I don't know. I got to figure that out for myself. But we've all got to figure out a way to be more systematic, providing the prayer support our missionaries need. Here's what I want you to do for just a moment. Shelby's going to come and play. Take a moment this morning. Pick one of these missionaries in the back of your book and pray these prayers for them. I don't think you could pick a wrong one. Say, well, I don't know any of these guys or girls. Well, pray for the Hendricks family. You met them last week. And I want you just for a moment, we're going to, as a church, spend just a moment this morning laboring in prayer for these missionary partners who desperately, desperately need our support. Let's spend some time praying this morning.